leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. was a time when scientists could spend their careers talking only to other scientists about their work, but that's changed. Whether it's the current funding climate, the need to understand complex scientific issues underlying public policy debates, or opportunities to fund translational work and commercialize important discoveries, scientists are increasingly being tasked with addressing lay audiences. In championing science, communicating your ideas to decision makers, the husband and wife team of Roger and Amy Ains offer a detailed guide for scientists on how to communicate effectively with non-scientists. Roger Ains is chief scientist of the Energy Program at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, and Amy Ains is CEO of Dominakis Communications. Each bring their professional experience to the book. We spoke to the duo about their book, why it's needed, and why they believe scientists not only need to learn how to communicate their ideas, but to compel action and change the world for the better. Roger, Amy, thanks for joining us. Great to have this conversation. Yeah, thanks. And congratulations on your book, Championing Science. We're going to talk about your book, the challenges scientists face communicating and your own experience communicating matters of science to decision makers. First, can you talk a little about how this book came about? Why did you choose to write? What need were you trying to address? Well, the book was Roger's idea, and he pitched it to me on a car ride down to visit my parents. And the more he talked about what he'd witnessed, the more I said, you know, I've seen the very same thing. Now, I spent a lot of time helping young scientists, uh, you know, basically do a better job presenting their ideas, and I've watched a great number of bad presentations, and I thought it, most people would benefit from a very small amount of, of advice, and I thought, why not write it down? Many scientists, when they decide to pursue a career in science, may never consider that they need to speak to venture capitalists or, or policymakers or the general public. Has something changed about society or, or science or, or something else to change the demands on scientists to make these types of presentations? Well, yeah, I think something very positive has happened. That is that people have learned that outside of government science, there are a great number of remarkable things that can be accomplished and the venture capital uh, funded activities are a really great example of that, particularly around medicines and technological advances. 
people have learned that you don't have to stay inside the bounds of pure government-funded science in order to make a difference. Scientists are often in the position of having to talk about complex ideas to audiences that may have no formal training in science whatsoever. How good a job do you think they generally do in this regard? <laughs> well, they, they don't do very well. Um, scientists have a problem with a thing that we call paradigm, and that comes from Thomas Kuhn's definition of it. And basically what a paradigm is, is all the knowledge that goes into your, your uh, scientific field. And that's all in your head, and it makes you think differently than other people who don't have that knowledge in their head. And it's very hard to understand that other people don't know what you know. And so when scientists start talking, they tend to start where they are instead of where their audience is. And of course, then the audience is lost. If you think about the most common problems or mistakes that scientists make when it comes to making presentations, what would you say those are? Well, clearly it's this paradigm gap, not recognizing that somebody you're talking to doesn't have the same definition of the words you use and you take for granted. But I think that the bigger issue is really about message. Most scientists don't approach conversations or presentations with a real strategic intent in terms of what they're communicating. They don't think in terms of having a message. And as a result, they often get bogged down in detail, which is where so many scientists live. And, and they need to live there. But when it comes to talking to decision makers, they need to elevate and really think strategically about the point they're trying to make. Many scientists tend to regard any discussion about their science as starting from the last thing that was done in their field. But, of course, a decision maker has very little idea what's been done in the field. You need to start much, much further back with them. You began by talking about that moment in the car when the two of you were, were driving and started talking about this. I'm wondering if either of you had a, a communication disaster that became an important learning moment for you and helped you make more effective presentations. What, what happened and, and what did you learn? Well, we witnessed communications disasters for sure. You know, I saw my share of technologists get really tripped up over details. And, you know, I could watch as the people they were talking to just kind of glazed over. I also spent a number of years doing media relations work, and I would often ask clarifying questions and pretend as though I didn't understand what my scientists had said so that I didn't put them off. And I made sure the reporter got to hear something that they could understand. You know, one of the, the things that I learned early on is that many times the decision maker is going to go along with you right away. They're going to, you know, the first two minutes they're going to be in, engaged and they're going to want what you're, what you're talking about. And um, the lesson that I learned from that is when you get what you want, stop talking. <laughs> Just because you prepared 30 slides doesn't mean you have to show them. <laughs> you can talk about what, what the uh, decision maker wants to get done. Let me ask you something else. I know there's a story in the book that you talk about your own experience, Roger, when you're talking about climate change. How important is it to understand the audience you're presenting to when you set out to make a presentation? Well, it's super important. And um, one of the lessons around climate change is that many people have different expectations. Even if you're a firm 
supporter of, of technology to deal with climate change. You have different approaches to which technologies you think are interesting. And of course, there are many people in the country who have different opinions about the importance of climate change. And one of our favorite uh, climate heroes is Catherine Hayhoe from Texas Tech. And she teaches us to start where the audience is. Find something that you share with the audience that you can talk about. If you're talking to business leaders, talk about jobs. In her case, she's a, 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 a event a Christian, uh, and she talks a lot about the importance of family and, and uh, you know, basically the future impact and taking care of the world as a Christian. So that's really the, the central thing is to find something you both share and start from there rather than just launching and discovering that you have a big gulf in between you at some later point. You talk about presentations, slides, and, and visuals, but one word I don't think appears in the book is PowerPoint. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what PowerPoint has done for people's ability to communicate ideas coherently, and has it helped, hurt, or, or neither? And, and do either or both of you use it? We both use it all the time, and I think one of the major problems with PowerPoint is that it encourages complexity. It encourages you to start with many, many things and to keep adding things and to keep adding little purple waves and multiple graphs and extra pictures and transitions that go zooming in and out. And these things detract from your message. They distract from the important things you're trying to transmit. And you have to remember that in a uh, any kind of a presentation, you're going to get at most three things that somebody's going to remember. And you can have a lot of points that help prepare and, and support those three things. But if you have more than three main things, people aren't going to remember them. And PowerPoint just encourages you to have a hundred things. Roger, you were trained as a scientist. Were you ever taught in your formal training to, to make a presentation to a lay audience? Was that part of science education today? Well, gee, I wasn't educated today, but thank you for the uh, compliment. Uh, um, you know, I, I was never taught to, to uh, talk to a lay audience. We were a little unusual at Caltech. We had a formal course in presentations that were intended to be scientific presentations. And what Amy Vice and I have discovered in the course of our book research is that's actually rare even today to even teach uh, scientists how to make scientific presentations, let alone to a less informed public. Yeah, one of the reasons that we focused on communicating with decision makers is that there has been a fair amount said to help scientists understand how to talk to the press, how to talk to the general public, but no one's really sat down and said, you know, how do you talk to the people who can advance your work? What sorts of things did they need to know and need to hear? And, you know, we see a real curriculum gap there. And what's been really interesting, Danny, is that there are several organizations around the country and individuals who are trying to take up the charge. Some of them are professors. Some of them, like the Alan Alda Center out of, out of Stony Brook, are doing some great work to try to help scientists and, and, and physicians learn how to be more effective communicators. Well, one of the things you talk about is the importance of building trust with the audience, why does this matter, and how does someone do this in what might be a 15-, 20-minute presentation? Well, trust and credibility matter a lot, especially when you're talking to a decision maker, because they have to not only understand you and be inspired by what you're asking them to support, but they've got to believe you. 
And that stems from being seen as trustworthy and credible. And there are a number of things a speaker can do. Everything from your having a confident posture as you're standing or sitting in front of somebody to learning how to integrate bits and pieces of story into the way you communicate so that you help somebody see your experience. You don't do it in a bold, brazen kind of way. You come across humble, but you say things like, you know, in the 10 years I was out in the field, I saw this happen very often. Little bits and pieces that reinforce the fact that you've been in these trenches. You have both the capability and you've gotten the results, and you also have the character and the integrity to do the work. And that shows up when you demonstrate to people that you share common common cause, that your intention is around doing what's best for the people involved. And, you know, when we talk to scientists about communicating with decision makers, we say the most important thing to do is talk about impact, not so much what your science is or how you're going to do it, but the impact that it's going to make. So all of those things come together and create a montage as you're communicating. And in 20 minutes, you can do a number of really powerful things to start to build trust. And I spend a lot of time talking with policymakers and legislators and uh, people who, who don't really know very much about what I'm going to bring to them to begin with. And often they'll have some, you know, important question they ask about it. And one of the best ways to build credibility is not to say, well, my um, topic is the best possible answer to your question. It's terrific to be able to say, well, you know, there's Professor X that you know, knows a lot more about that or has a great technology or has a great approach to that. And the minute you um, speak up for somebody else in an audience like that, you build credibility. Your book is comprehensive. It's, it's got lots of sound advice, but there's a fundamental point of language about the way you talk about what you're teaching here that I'd like to get your thoughts on. The title is Championing Science. You, you don't just want to teach scientists to be more effective communicators, but to actually champion, to be champions of science. In, in your own words, to compel action and, and change the world for the better. Why is that? Well, that's why I am a scientist. I think it's why a lot of people are scientists. They, they enjoy science, but they do it because they feel a higher calling. They want to make the world a better place. And I, I think every scientist has the potential to make an impact, and, and that's one of the reasons we're so interested in helping people communicate their ideas clearly, so that, you know, you never know where the next breakthrough is going to come from. And, you know, if, if people don't get a chance to, to convey their ideas to decision makers well, then, you know, they, their ideas could get passed over. Well, we're at a, a strange time in history with the public view towards facts and science. We have climate change deniers, flat earthers, creationists, anti-vaxxers, and, and people who believe the moon landing was faked. Some of this might seem laughable, but this has big consequences. Do scientists have a responsibility to communicate to non-scientists? They absolutely do. And that kind of communication is, is surprisingly well-received. Um, people don't get it. I Every time I ride in a taxi, I ask the taxi driver about climate change. You know, why? Because they've never talked to a climate scientist before. They're likely to be influenced by what I say. Um, and I think that the more people that talk about these things, 
the more believable it is because there are non-scientists out there who are more than willing to talk about things they have no knowledge about at all. Yeah, the voice of scientists is really essential, and, and I see it as a huge opportunity to make sure that more and more people are informed and they get fact-based understanding of the issues that we face in our world because there are many of them. So, you know, in, in our eyes, the notion of championing is, is being out there talking about science in a way that can help engage people to take action that's going to ultimately make a difference. And that's why we're really inspired by the work we're doing. And where can people find the book? On Amazon, or it's available from the uh, University of California Press site. We had a great experience working with them as a publisher. They really spend a lot of time uh, getting the book out to reviewers, giving us feedback, helping us make what, what we feel is much, much better book than the one that uh, we thought we might be self-publishing when we had this conversation <laughs> way back when. The book is Championing Science. Roger Ains, Chief Scientist of the Energy Program at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and A.B. Ains, CEO of Damanakis Communications. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. It's been delightful. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.